Hello, we're back with another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance, and how people define happiness and success. My name is Graham Alcott. I'm your host for the show. And on this episode, I'm talking to Daniel Crosby. Daniel is the author of a really great book called The Behavioural Investor, which kind of sounds like it's talking about finance, but really a lot of the way through, it's talking about humans and biases and the way we make decisions. And it's really fascinating stuff. So I think you're going to really love this episode, one of my favourites actually for a while. Um, So before we get into the episode, last call for if you're interested in joining me for my masterclass event. It's the 27th of February. It's in London. It's at a place called the Business Design Centre in Angel. And it's a full day. And the idea is that we walk through all the main stuff from my book, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. If you've not read that book, there's a a five-year updated anniversary edition uh, that just came out last year. So that's available on Amazon as well. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's all at getbeyondbusy.com. So we'll put the link to the Eventbrite page in there as well. But also, if you just go to Eventbrite and just type in my name, uh, then you'll find the event page for the event on 27th of February. So come and sign up for that. It'd be great to to have you with us. And uh, it was kind of weird, like last time I did uh, Masterclass last year, I asked everybody in the room how they found out about us. And a couple of people there had bought tickets just because of Beyond Busy. But what was kind of interesting was just how random the uh, uh, the stories of Happy Bird Family were. Uh, and it got me talking um, a lot to my team about marketing. So I'm going to be making some quite big... Uh, strides and changes this year. That's kind of been my my main intention for the year is to really focus on my own uh, marketing and audience and platform and all that sort of stuff. So uh, more coming along that track and basically trying to do it in an ethical, nice, humble, reasonable way and not be a dick, basically. So uh, that's the idea with that over the course of this year. Uh, I've got lots of ideas and um, been getting some good help with it and... uh, uh, watch this space. There'll be some interesting stuff happening hopefully later in the year. So let's get straight into this episode. Um, recorded um, online because Daniel's in the States, as you're going to hear. Uh, and uh, as I said before, really great book, The Behavioural Investor. And I just learned so much from hearing Daniel talk um, a little while back and just thought it'd be such great guests for Beyond Busy. And I wasn't wrong. So really good episodes. Uh, I think you're going to enjoy this one. Let's get straight into it. Here's my conversation with Daniel Crosby. Um, so I'm I'm a huge baseball fan as well. I'm a I'm a Toronto Blue Jays fan, um, which came about because I was my company had uh, an office just outside Toronto, so I ended up in in Toronto in the evenings with nothing to do, and hence I found my love of baseball. And you're a Cardinals fan, right? That's right. But you know what? I um. The, the Blue Jays are actually my American League team. They, uh, I spent, oh, really? Yeah, I spent, uh, it's a new, it's a new thing. You know, the Cardinals are my favorite team. I live in Atlanta, yeah. so I, I follow the Braves as well. But, you know, I spent, uh, three months in Western Canada on a work assignment a few, a few years back and just absolutely fell in love with Canada. I mean, the nice. beautiful place, the yeah. nicest people. And so I decided then and there that the Blue Jays were my American League team. So, so we are, we are brothers in that respect. And it's fun, isn't it? Because obviously the West Coast of Canada is so far away from, you know, there's a lot of people there that would support the Blue Jays who've never been to a game at the Sky Dome. But it it really is a team that is supported by the whole country. 
Uh, it really is, which is neat. And yes, I was in Calgary in the Calgary Banff area. Oh yeah. And, you know, many of the ma- many of the people that I met had indeed never been to Eastern Canada, and yet they were Blue Jays fans. So it's neat to have yeah. a whole a whole country rooting for one team. Very cool. Did you ever get out to Seattle for when they play they play at Seattle and the Blue Jays take it over? Oh no, I, I've you know what's crazy? I've never been to Seattle. Um, you know. Okay. Uh, what now 12 year 12 years of traveling 50 weeks a year and i've never been to seattle so that's, that's somehow that city has eluded me yeah so there's there's usually about 3000 seattle fans and about 20000 blue jays fans in that stadium <laughs> for a seattle home game it's quite that's funny that's great that's great do you think you'll make it over to london for the cardinals cubs series next year so i am i'm headed to london friday um so i'll be headed to london this very week but then i am a huge cardinals fan as you said and i'm going to do everything in my power to get to that cardinals cubs series next year even though i know it'll be quite expensive but uh the cubs the cubs are my most hated team and and there's nowhere i'd rather see them lose than europe (laughs) (laughs) well i already have my tickets so uh if you do get some tickets let's uh let's let's meet up before the game i love it perfect cool um so let's get into some um some some chat uh and really just first of all just thanks for being on beyond busy so we were uh both on the same bill um for uh an investment bank client a little while ago uh which i i was i was doing it in rome which was really lovely actually they put me up in a really lovely hotel uh and i had a really nice couple of days in rome as well and you were in the slightly less glamorous uh, location of being in a small office on Zoom down the line from Atlanta, right? Yes, I was in a dingy office park <laughs> in suburban Atlanta, which is slightly less glamorous. I was very, <laughs> I was very sad that I couldn't make it. Um, but I really loved your talk, and it really centered around a lot of the, the key uh, chapters from your book, The Behavioral Investor. Um, and what struck me was. Uh, how some of the lessons around investing and some of the biases that uh, infect, affect investors are actually really just really interesting lessons for life in general rather than just being applicable to investors. So I thought it, it'd be really interesting probably for my listeners to kind of get a sense of some of the most up-to-date thinking around the psychology of investing, but also actually you know think about how that stuff kind of uh, impacts on uh, all of us in our everyday lives too. Um, so, do you want to just tell us about first of all how you got into this this area? So, you're a psychologist, you're a behavioral finance expert, and you're also an asset manager. Um, how did how did all of this start for you? How, what was your kind of um, career starting point? First of all, well, so my my father is a financial advisor, and so that's probably why all of this feels so familiar to me, why it all sort of feels like home to be to be working in this industry. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I set out for college with an eye to doing what my dad had done and, and working in finance. But I quickly, in, in fulfillment of my general education courses, started to take a lot of psychology courses and was just, you know, blown away. Just, you know, had had a, a love for psychology that it, uh, you know, I had never really studied in depth and was just enjoying those courses a great deal more than I was my, my business courses. And so, you know, set out to be a psychologist thinking that I would be a, a clinical psychologist, went to, you know, got an undergraduate degree in psychology, got a graduate degree in psychology that I started, you know, three days after my, my undergraduate degree. But about three years in, you know, about three years into my PhD program, I started to burn out on on clinical applications of, of psychology. I was 
meeting with 40 or 50 clients a week, some of whom, you know, as you would expect, were going through some very heavy things. And it was just a lot. It was a, it was a lot for me personally to feel responsible for, for 40 or 50 other people who were going through some very harrowing things, dealing with some very dark things in some cases. Yeah. And it was just taking a personal, a personal toll on me, just personally stressful for me and made, made home life difficult in some ways. And so I said, look, I love, I love psychology. I love thinking deeply about why people do the things that they do. Uh, but there's gotta be a non-clinical way to, to, study this and to pursue this love of mine. And so, you know, long story short, I found my way into behavioral economics and behavioral finance. I think, again, largely because of this, uh, having grown up talking about investing at the dinner table, my dad says to me, you know, look, there's a lot of psychology in what I do, which is something that I had, I had never supposed. And so, you know, long to make a long story short, my first job out of my PhD program was with uh, a company that did pre-employment assessments of bankers. And so I would assess bankers for things like um, IQ and emotional stability and emotional intelligence to see if these uh, folks would make good executives. And within the bank, um, within the bank, I became exposed to behavioral economics and behavioral finance in earnest. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. So apart from the obvious stuff like high IQ and looking to... It, looking for people who are aware of biases, what are you looking for in those situations of what makes a good banker? Oh, well, so there's a couple, uh, there's a couple of findings I would share. So one of the things that we found is for, for almost every job, the best predictor of job performance is what's called G or general intelligence. And so the finding is that people with a lot of general intelligence, you know, people with a high IQ effectively, uh, they may not be good at everything, but but high intelligence masks weakness as well. So let's say someone is not, um, you know, I'll use myself. Like, let's say someone is like me and they're not all that prepared. They're not all that detail oriented. Well, if they're smart, um, they can give a presentation that maybe never lets on how unprepared they were because they're just smart and they're good at winging it. So, right. you know, um, <laughs> uh, good intelligence covers a lot of ills. And so we were always looking, uh, you know, uh, intelligence was always something we were looking for. Now, this is not meant to be a diss, but one thing that we found is that intelligence was, uh, was uh, not the asset that it was for other roles uh, when, when considering salespeople. So salespeople who were very, very intelligent tended not to thrive uh, because it's a job that requires a lot of rote memorization, a lot of repetition. It wasn't mm. very appealing to some very smart people. Uh, sometimes they would sell in ways that were, you know, that were over the heads of the people that they were trying to influence. Right. And so for sales roles, we, we found that, you know, a lot of the interpersonal characteristics we would consider were more important. Uh, but but for most people in most roles, there's there's not much that's more important than general intelligence, even though, of course, it's sort of necessary but not sufficient. Nobody wants to work with a jerk. Uh, but, it, you know, it's a good it's a good place to start. Nice. And so from there and then getting into the whole area of behavioral economics and behavioral investing. Um, so you've now written a couple of very interesting books on the topic and you now... Uh, both work in the industry and speak. Do you, do you find there's ever a, a sort of tension between those two parts of 
your role or those two hats that you're wearing? Uh, you know, uh, no. In fact, I think that speaking speaking is something that I just sort of fell into. I mean, I never set out. Maybe, maybe no one sets out to be a, a public speaker. I certainly did not. Um, but for me, speaking and writing are just candidly sort of necessary evils that <laughs> you know. It's just something that I that I have to do. Uh, but the reason that I enjoy it is because it sharpens my thinking. You know, yeah. if, if we're up yeah. to me. Uh, if it were up to me, I'd spend my whole life writing books. Um, but, but what speaking and writing does for me is that it allows me to uh, question my own thinking, to figure out what I truly believe, and to be able to communicate that in a sort of a simplified, parsimonious way. You know, the physicist Richard Feynman said, you know, until you can teach it to a child, basically, you don't understand. Mm. And so having to having to teach complicated psychological concepts to lay people requires me um, to to do a lot of thinking, a lot of uh, digging, a lot of examining my own, uh, the gaps in my own knowledge. And so uh, speaking and think, uh, speaking and writing are, are you know, uh, things that I never expected to do, but things that have been quite beneficial to my, to my other roles. Yeah, it feels like certainly the, the way I feel about books is that once you start to write something down in a book, it just takes on this significance. You know that it's going to be there for a long period of time, potentially, and that people are going to be able to download that. And it, and it kind of becomes the the public record of what you think about a particular subject. So for me, it always feels like it adds, there's a kind of gravitas of commitment, right? Like the fact that you have to commit to something and it just kind of feels really important somehow. Well, I, I agree. I think, I think a lot about com- um, commitment and legacy. Mm. You know, for me, writing books is about leaving a legacy. I have, um, you know, I'm, I'm really into existentialism and existential thinkers and writers. And a lot of existential thought is about, you know, how do we overcome the dread of death, you know, and how do we leave a legacy? And for me, um, for me, that's that's through writing. And I think it is powerful. And it does, like you said, it makes you think twice because, you know, you know, this is going to be <laughs> this is going to be effectively written in stone forever. And people will ask me questions about this. And this is I'm on record now. So it is really a, a, a cleansing process and a process by which I think everyone could benefit uh, by writing just to just to get out what you really believe. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, one of the things that you're known for is a thing called the Irrationality Index. So do you want to just talk about what that is and how that came into being? Yeah, so um, the, the tricky thing about investing is the, the way that we are wired to invest and the way that we ought to invest are almost inverse uh, of one another. So uh, the times when investing feels very you know happy or safe or euphoric, those times tend to be uh, quite, quite bad times to invest it uh, in, in principle. And the times in which investing is, you know, scary and terrifying and and feels uncertain, uh, those are often the best times to invest. And so what I tried to do was I, I looked at the, looked at the data to try and figure out what were some data points that, that loaded on to measuring, you know, greed and fear, as it were, in the marketplace, so that I could have some sort of objective measure of greed or fear. And basically, mm. automate the process of, of taking more risk when I least wanted to, and then getting more conservative when I 
perhaps felt most aggressive. Um, <laughs> because it's a very, you know, it's a very, very tricky thing to do if left to your own devices. And so the, the irrationality index was just my attempt at, at codifying the emotion of the markets and, and doing so in a way that was, uh, data driven, you know, a lot of, yeah. a lot of, uh, uh, sentiment surveys and other things. One of the first things you learn in psychology is that people are really, really poor predictors of their own behavior and poor descriptors of their own behavior. We have very limited insights into our, our motivations and our, even our, you know, beliefs and feelings. And so I didn't, you know, you, you have stuff in the States, like the Michigan consumer confidence survey, like what, you know, what do I care about what some people in Michigan think they're going to shop for in the next six months? You know, let's, let's look at the market. Market. The market itself is giving us rich data points uh, just in objective metrics, like what are people paying for shares and, you know, yeah. what's the volatility and things like this. So, um, yeah, that's that's how I use the irrationality index. And it's been a fun it's been a fun exercise to try and quantify the emotion, not of a person, uh, but of, a you know, a group of people, the group of people that make up capital markets. So, so a market really is I've never really thought of it like that before, but I suppose the market is just a collection of people's emotions, right? That's like, that's a huge uh, part of the definition of what a market would be. No, that's, that's exactly what, uh, that's exactly what a market is. And you know, what's, uh, what's interesting to me, I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, when you saw my presentation, you were able to extrapolate and apply it to things outside of markets because I, I don't candidly find markets, all that interesting per se, ex ex except insofar as they are a canvas with which to paint, you know, uh, paint a psychological picture. The cool thing yeah. about markets, markets aren't cool in and of themselves. I think markets are cool uh, to to the extent in which they give us uh, interesting factual data on human emotions. So that's the more interesting piece of markets to me is just they are a a public expression of private thought uh, and you're able to study them in very detailed ways in which you you know couldn't study the average person who's who's laying on a therapist's couch for an hour at a time yeah yeah um, and i suppose the irrationality index at its heart is about how to enact warren buffett's famous phrase about being greedy when uh, the market is fearful and be fearful when the market is greedy right yeah, that's that's exactly right. So I sat by a, a woman on a plane recently and she she asked me what I did. And, it, you know, whenever I ask what I do, I, I kind of do these little experiments. You know, sometimes <laughs> I'll say I'm <laughs> sometimes I'll say I'm a writer and, you know, people look at me pityingly. Sometimes <laughs> I say, <laughs> you know, sometimes I say that I'm a psychologist and, you know, people want free therapy. Uh, some Sometimes I say I'm a, you know, I'm a finance executive and people just are leave me alone but you know so uh i you know i told this woman in some detail uh, sort of contrary to my usual uh, experiments i said you know look i'm sort of a, a stock market psychologist and she you know asked a little bit more and then she goes so wait a minute you you went to eight years of college to, to, to tell me, you know, to tell me to buy low and sell high, like, you know, what, you, basically, you know, basically what is there to it? But, you know, Warren Buffett's, uh, you know, his little aphorism there about being about being fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. Uh, it, it sounds 
pithy and simple and it's it's pithy but it's not simple right like it's it's mm. a, it's exactly what you need to be doing but but measuring and codifying greed and fear in the marketplace is tricky uh that's you know step one and then ensuring you act in the way that feels opposite to the way that you know every fiber of your being is screaming for you to be fearful and taking yeah. risk at that time is an enormously difficult thing and, you know, this is the the hallmark of all my work. And, you know, I think anything meaningful in life, whether it's, you know, uh, getting, you know, starting a business or getting in shape or, you know, dealing with your own health and nutrition, all these things are easy in principle and hard to execute. You know, I mean, diet and exercise is the easiest thing in the world to understand. Uh, and yet, you know, I still got a belly. And like, why is that? Because it's hard, <laughs> you know, it's hard to execute on. Uh, even if we understand it in its simplest form, and I guess part of the thing with with that uh, sort of Warren Buffett way of thinking is that it's quite contrarian. And I'm wondering if you want to talk about being weird. So you did a talk which was called "Can Being Weird Make You Rich and Happy?" So tell us about being weird and why you think it's a good thing. Yeah, well, I think. Um... I think being weird is, is very underrated, you know, as I, as I mentioned in that talk. So, I mean, in the, in the strictest sense, in terms of what I do, uh, being weird is a job requirement. You know, I mean, for you to be a successful investor, you need, you know, two conditions have to be met. You need to have an unpopular opinion, right? So you need to have a weird idea and it <laughs> needs to be right. <laughs> so you can't you, you you can't just have weird ideas. They need to be good weird ideas, but you have to have a contrarian opinion because otherwise the, the you know the it's baked in. If you just agree yeah. with the consensus, there's no value there. There's no there's no delta between the perception and where the price is, and so you just get what you get. So um, you know, in a, in a very real respect, my whole job is about being weird. Uh, in ways that that are, are are later proven to be correct, but there's uh, I think there's other ways that we can be weird in the workplace. You know, um, I work in finance, which is the land of you know gray gray suits and navy suits and conservative haircuts and and the rest. And uh, all of this, people think the way to get ahead at, at work or in finance is to look, you know, to have the right watch, to have the right suit, to look just like everyone else. Mm. Well, when all the research, all the research shows that uh, people who dress slightly oddly, right? Like slightly different. So not like full on, you know, not full on weird, then you'll get fired. But like if if you're just 10 or 20% different than the pack, yeah. you stand out, you get noticed and people tend to assume uh, that you are that way because you have license to be that way. So if you have a beard or, you know, a slightly different haircut or, you know, a, wear a slightly interesting clothing or, what you know, whatever your way of being weird is, people assume good things about you. They assume that you're able to get away with that because you bring something else to the table. So I think that in, in many facets of life, uh, learning to own our, you know, sort of brand of crazy and be yeah. a little weird in, 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 especially in ways that are, you know, foreshadowing of where the world is headed. I think it's a, a powerful construct to be applied in the world of, of life and work. Um, I was quite surprised a few, a couple of years ago, maybe three or four years ago, I, um, I got a, a suit tailored in the city of London. And I remember the woman saying to me, 
you want you should have three buttons here and have this particular cut and like there were certain things that she wanted me to do because she said that's the current thing that everybody will look at you for um you know in the city and that's that's the way that suits are in the city and i was really surprised by this like i partly i didn't like those cuts and partly um you know it was, it was the first time i'd had a suit tailored in the city so it kind of felt like just this whole new thing but i was quite surprised that there was such a uniform to it and i wonder particularly when there is such an emphasis on biases and, and and being conscious of that stuff why there is such a uniform and, and such a level of conformity like in the city and in finance in general why do you think that is well so the, it's it's interesting right there's uh first of all no one should ever wear a three button suit like go <laughs> double breast go get a two button suit or go double breasted but never be caught with the three button suit so first of all <laughs> let's get that out right now um so is that you conforming though why is that <laughs> no, no, no. That's just personal. That's personal style. Pro- I just think three button suits look goofy. That's just a personal style. Pro- but she was talking about she was talking about buttons on sleeves and oh, certain, got it, got it, got it. You know, lapel lengths and stuff that was I thought was really detailed, and I couldn't work out why there was such a, a uniform to it. Well, so it, it, we're going to get really deep here. We're going to go very evolutionary, <laughs> right? So the the reason why your suit uh, g- g- was recommended in the way that it was actually goes back tens of thousands of years. So humankind, <laughs> okay. right? Human humankind, we don't have, uh, you know, we don't have sharp claws. Uh, we're not we're not big. We don't have sharp claws. You know, we don't have sharp teeth. We can't run fast. And so the only way that that humankind has survived is by working as a whole mm. you know i even i even start off my book the behavioral investor with somewhat of a a strange story you know i give the example like let's say that you're on a, a plane that crashes and there's uh, the only survivors are you know you and one monkey you know there's a monkey from the atlanta zoo yeah. that's that's headed yeah. to london so you crash on this deserted island there's there's one person and one monkey you know two years later who's going to be around the person or the monkey, like the monkey's going to be around. Mm. But like, if there's a plane crash, it would be a very weird plane. But like, let's say there's a plane crash with a hundred, a hundred people survive and a hundred monkeys. The people will band together and, and wipe those monkeys out. Right. If there's, you know, there's, there's strength in numbers and the way that we have risen to the top of the food chain is not by virtue of our brute power, but by virtue of our cooperation. So it's very, very, very deeply ingrained in humankind to get along and to do what other people are doing and to not stick out. Yeah. And so uh, interestingly, that is, you know, that is uh, why contrarian investing is so hard. They've done research on contrarian investing that uh, people who are taking a contrarian opinion, like the kind you talked about Buffett making, um, these people experience symptoms of, of loneliness and sadness and depression that, that exactly mirror those things in the general population. So in a very real sense, it's like you didn't get picked for the baseball team. I mean, it's the same sort of isolation and loneliness. Mm. And so, yeah, so why do we all dress the same in the city? Like, why do we all wear the same kind of suits? Because evolutionarily, we're wired to work together uh, and to get along and to, to stay with the tribe. And we punish people who act differently. Um, 
But I, you know, as a caveat though, I still think that what I talked about before, I think you want to be 10% different. I think you want to be 15% different. You know, you don't want to be, you don't want to be, you know, laughed at, but you want to be differentiated enough that people take notice. And I think that's a fine line to walk. Okay. So yeah, 10%, 15%, I'm going to push it to 20% weird. <laughs> yeah. Go, I, I'm I'm at least I'm at least forty five percent weird. I'm I'm sort of uh, <laughs> it's a precarious line I'm walking. <laughs> um, so let's talk about from the book. You've got these four pillars of the behavioral investor, uh, which is ego, conservatism, emotion, and attention. Um, so should we talk about ego first? And what what can people take from uh, from psychology here in terms of uh, how to think about investing, and also then how to think about life in general? Yeah. So ego is the tendency of people to think that they are um, smarter, better looking, luckier, generally better off than than their peers. Uh, and so the reason that this exists, all of these things have uh, all of these things are useful in some respects or they you know, we, we wouldn't have held on to them. So the reason that this exists, uh, it's it's a bit of a psychological immune system. You know, it helps us when we get sad, when we fail, when we get knocked down this belief that we are lucky and good and talented uh, leads us to get back up again. So it's actually quite a, a positive thing in, in many respects. And yet when we apply it to work in business settings, it can get problematic. And so you look at someone who is, you know, starting a new business, say, um, if this overconfidence creeps in too heavily, they won't take the appropriate cautions or do the appropriate due diligence before starting their business. Because what you have to understand is that whatever 90, 95% of businesses fail within the first couple of years. Uh, but if you ask people who are starting a business, if, if your business is going to fail, effectively 0% of them will say yes. And, you know, the same is the same is true of marriages. You know, um, 50%, it may, maybe it's much better uh, in, in England, but in, in the U.S., I mean, 50% of people get divorced. But if you ask, you know, the bride and groom on their big day, you know, like, hey, what do you think the odds are that you're going to get divorced? <laughs> don't, do, don't do that, by the way. But if you, if you were to ask me, <laughs> if you were to ask someone that, you know, effectively, nobody would say there was any chance of, of divorce. And because of that, we failed to go to marriage counseling and we failed yeah. to date people long enough and we failed to enter into the covenant of marriage seriously. So um, we have to understand the good and the bad of this. Like it's good. You know, it's good in some respects. It, it insulates you from hardship. It makes you resilient. That's all good stuff. But don't let it get in your way in a business or an investing context where you are underprepared uh, and you don't do due diligence on the front end to make sure that you're, you're not, you're equal to what you're biting off. Yeah. And you talk about confirmation bias within this as well. And I, I guess thinking about that business example, you know, when I started my business, I'd just come off the back of uh, quite a, a, a sort of quick rise in career trajectory uh, as an employed person and then uh, had a couple of good years as, as a freelance person. And so I'd, all I'd kind of known was successes. And so there's the kind of confirmation bias of that where I'm then going to think that whatever I turn my hand to next is going to just automatically be successful, right? But like, I'm not looking at the fact that other people who start businesses would have probably also had successes themselves in the past. 
So yeah, tell us tell us more about confirmation bias and some of the other biases that that might be at play there. Yeah, so confirmation bias is really just seeking out information that agrees with your opinion. You know, I think um, <laughs> I think famously we're able to do this politically. And again, I apologize; I don't know a lot about the the what the the political news looks like in Europe, but you know, here it's almost as bad as yours. <laughs> <laughs> seems hard, seems hard yeah. to believe, but yeah, yeah, I believe it. It does, but yeah, it is. <laughs> so, but so, I mean, effectively, effectively, what you can do is we have uh, you know numerous political news channels. One of them far right, one of them far left, one of them probably you know more more centrist. But what you can do is you can effectively curate your intake of information. So you know if you are are a very liberal person, you can only watch uh, uh, viewpoints that agree with your own all day and be, you know, thoroughly enraged at the other side and, you know, and vice versa. And so uh, it's tricky because, you know, it's very comforting, right? It's very comforting to not challenge our beliefs. And yet uh, the way that we make well-rounded personal and financial and professional decisions is by having a, a host of diverse opinions. You even see this in the workplace. You know, um, powerful executives will hire a bunch of yes people, a bunch of people that look and talk and think just like them because they don't want their ideas challenged. And yet all the research shows that the best teams are psychologically diverse, right? Mm. Which is... Um, you know, has has some overlap, but imperfect overlap with things like gender diversity uh, and racial diversity and things like that. But but we find that psychologically diverse teams take longer to make a decision. They fight more, but they also make better decisions and those teams make more money. So it's a bit of a pain. <laughs> you know, it's a bit of a pain to surround yourself with dissenting opinions, but ultimately it's the right thing to do. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's confirmation bias in, in, in a nutshell is not wanting to burst this ego bubble by surrounding uh, ourselves with ideas or people that will challenge our thinking. Yeah, um, I love the bit in the book. I'll just read a couple of the, the stats out where you talk about um, there's two bits. You talk about plastic bags versus paper bags. And really, you know, challenging that assumption that I'm, I'm sure most of us, if not all of us have, that paper bags are always better than plastic bags. And then you've got some stats on gun crime. And I'll just read these out because I just thought this was fascinating. And I suppose the, the point you're making here is more not whether you're in favor or against gun control, but more how your reaction, just like observing your reactions and kind of hearing the information. But 98% of guns used in the commission of a crime are stolen. Over 100,000 people successfully defend themselves with a gun every year. Nine times out of 10, gun owners defend themselves without firing a shot. More people drown each year than have been accidentally shot since 1980. And kitchen knives kill 10 times as many people each year as assault weapons. So I just thought those were like really, that really stuck out to me as just a really interesting um, just illustration of, of being able to challenge your own thinking. So I guess with the teams thing, what we're what what you're really kind of gathering from that is that uh, there's there's a there's a huge difference between group groupthink at one end of the spectrum and then the diversification of of thoughts and ideas that kind of lead us somewhere much better, right? 
Well, that's right. And, you know, the reason that I chose the gun control example is because I am myself a proponent of of tighter gun controls. I feel like the gun problem in the U.S. is enormously embarrassing. I think it's a, you know, a tragedy. And so uh, and I mean, I, I still feel that way even after hearing those stats. Yeah. But it does it does help you put it in perspective. You know, there's a there's a great example going on here right now. Um legislature in the u.s is moving to ban uh vaping so like e-cigarettes mm. which have killed which have killed six people now each one of those lives were precious and each one of them is a is a, an enormous shame to to have lost but cigarette cigarettes kill thousands and tens of thousands of people every year in the u.s and so it's like sometimes you know Taking in more information can help you get a more holistic view and a less sensational view and focus on the right problem. Mm. So um, it was an exercise. I mean, it was a very uh, it was a very personal exercise in me confronting some of my own presuppositions about how to to root out the gun problem in, in America. Yeah. And I think, you know, we're, we're about to come into an election period here in the UK and I, f- I feel like the biggest tragedy in our democracy is that people do have this uh, real bias towards a their own existing viewpoints and having those things confirmed, and b very emotional kind of story based um, attitudes around politics. Whereas, if you know, real democracy would be about everybody sitting down with lots of ob- objective data and really weighing these things up in much more depth and in hopefully some intelligent in more intelligent ways than we do now right yeah so at the risk of hijacking your podcast that sort of brings us to the attention pillar which is this idea that that we are not great at weighing probability but yeah. instead we attend to we we attend to you know one or two things that are sexy or lurid or sensational so this when it comes to voting this takes a couple of very specific forms so the first would be sort of like single issue voters so i'm going to you know this issue has my attention you know brexit or you know the immigration in the us or abortion or what you know whatever it is so this this issue has my attention so i'm going to choose the next you know, prime minister, president, whatever, based entirely on their views on this one position. Uh, secondarily, though, is is what's called answering an easier question. So, you know, the the sort of voting that you're calling for is like, let's sit down with a spreadsheet put all the candidates in the, you know, you know, in these columns, we're going to have, you know, more columns with all their views. We're going to rate our, you know, our agreement with those views on a Likert scale. And then we're going to choose the best, you know, the best candidate. Well, no one does that, right? Mm-hmm. The way that the way that we vote or the way that we tend to vote, sadly, uh, because of this attention problem that we have is we tend to answer an easier question. So we don't say, you know, who will be uh, who will be the best president of the United States, uh, which would include everything from their intelligence to their temperament, uh, to their views on various stances, to their foreign policy and, you know, a hundred, hundred other things. What we answer instead is, who would I like to have a beer with? And I mean, that is yeah. really that is yeah. really how most people vote. And it's it's because of this limited attention and, and different things just standing out to us more than others. 
And and you talk in in that section about stories and stories are the enemy of the behavioural investor. And I just think of my gran there with the voting thing where she she literally I mean she votes all over the map. We have kind of you know three or four parties that would stand in general elections that she would at some point or another have supported. And she would generally pick which one she's supporting based on exactly that. You know, oh, I don't like her style or mannerisms or, you know, he seems like an honest guy or whatever, whatever the right. thing is. You know, it'll be, it'll be very um, personality-driven, story-driven stuff rather than, um, well, this person's either better for my finances or better for society. Yeah, well, that's, again... Uh, like like your grandma, I think you said it was, we have, it's a very complicated and cognitively taxing and time-consuming endeavor, you know, to watch every debate, to weigh out every opinion, to compare them all, to, to weight those opinions relative to how they will impact us and society at large. It's much easier to just say, you know, who seems friendly or who seems likable or who would I like to have a beer with? And so, you know, I would challenge anyone listening to this, Ask yourself, like set aside your political, you know, uh, affiliations and just ask yourself who's the most friendly and sort of likable, easy to get to know candidate. And I, I can nearly promise you that that person will win the election. Mm. Um, <clears throat> you know, you've seen it here time and time again, um, even, you know, even if someone is sort of abhorrent to you uh, politically, if, if the average person thinks that they're, you know, someone they could spend a night at a pub with, they're going to be, they're going to be in charge soon. And, you know, <laughs> people like Trump is like, even if you don't agree with his politics, it'd be fascinating to get him drunk and keep him talking. Right. <laughs> <laughs> believe it, believe it or not, Trump doesn't drink, which is wild to me that he says some of the things <laughs> he says, some of the things that he says, totally sober. <laughs> Uh, I suppose that leads us quite neatly onto conservatism, right? Oh, there you go. <laughs> Keeping it political. So conservatism, conservatism is not the the political tendency to be conservative, but rather <laughs> it's this uh, this tendency to evaluate things we know uh, as being safer or more desirable, and it's this general tendency to 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 want to stick with the status quo. So, um, you know, the the easy investing example of this is that people tend to dramatically overinvest in uh, in their home country. So, you know, we'll we'll go back to Canada. I spent you know I spent that time in Canada. Canada makes up about four percent of the world equity market. And yet the average Canadian investor has, you know, somewhere between a 65 and 70% allocation to Canadian stocks. Mm. And so the reason that they do this is because it seems safe and it seems familiar because these are the companies, you know, these are the stores you drive past every day on your way to work. This is where you shop. This is where you fill up your car. Um, and yet it's immensely dangerous because if you're a Canadian and you're heavily overweight Canadian stocks, so now your job is based on the, you know, the economic fortunes of Canada, your investments are based on Canada, your housing is based on Canada. And so there's there's real safety from an investment perspective in investing in things that you do not know. You know, so for, you know, for me to invest in Europe and Asia and Africa and different parts of the world is actually 
uh, a very smart thing if I do it in a diversified manner. But it feels a little dangerous because, you know, what do I know about Asia and Africa, really? Mm, uh, so it's, it's yeah. a hard thing to get past uh, our tendency to confuse what we know with what's safe or what's desirable. And I guess back to the stories thing, when you're analyzing companies or stocks, then there's such a, an emotional story when you think about Tim Hortons or, you know, uh, like, a, you know, a big brand that you've seen every day or, or grown up with since childhood. Whereas I suppose if you're looking at a Japanese stock and it's a coffee company that you've never heard of, at least you can kind of, you know, perhaps be a bit more objective with how you analyze that company as a whole. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, we, we do this with everyday things, too. Um, it goes back to the story. So um, people tend to evaluate things uh, like uh, like investing. So uh, multi-asset class, well-diversified investing. If you if you have been a long-term investor, that's been an enormously safe proposition for you historically. Like mm -hmm. the track record of well-diversified investing uh, over a 20 or 30-year clip is extremely, extremely safe uh, historically. But something like uh, water sports, you know, something like uh, boating, People think boating is really safe when it's actually very, very dangerous. It's just fun. So, again, we ask this easier question. We don't say, you know, is boating safe? We ask, is boating fun? And we go, yeah, boating's fun. And so we think it, <laughs> you know, so we think it's safe. You say, well, is investing, you know, is investing for the long term safe? Well, uh, we and we often answer no because it's boring. So we just, you know, we have to answer the right, <laughs> we have to answer the right question here, or we can really get led astray. Um, and again, it goes back to those stories. Yeah. Um, tell us about why we watched the blockbuster films and not the art house films and why Pepsi lost the Pepsi challenge. <laughs> so why Pepsi lost the Pepsi challenge? Well, uh, Pepsi lost the Pepsi challenge because Coke is a far superior product um, <laughs> is the reason. It's I'm, fr I'm from Atlanta. I've got to, you know, like I got to stick up for the home team. So I'll talk about... Um, I'll talk about uh, Coke. I think Coke's rollout of new Coke, you know, this is something that we study in every business school in, in America. Um, Coke rolls out new Coke and it's a, it's a catastrophic failure. Uh, even though people preferred new Coke to Coke classic three to one, but yet people felt like they were losing something, you know, when they were told like, you can't buy Coke classic anymore. Here's the new Coke that you get people. I mean, people literally rioted in the streets. Mm -hmm. And so again, it goes back to us confusing what we know with what's good or, or what's powerful. So it's, it's crazy to think that there is a more delicious formula for Coke out there that we can't have um, because we're averse to nice things, right? We're, we're averse to nice things if they if they are, aren't as well known as the thing we had before. So again, that goes back to why why Pepsi lost too. Um, people preferred uh, Pepsi and blind taste tests, and yet, pe you know, Coke had spent a hundred years wrapping itself in the American flag and Santa Claus and everything else. And so even though people prefer Pepsi and blind taste tests, uh, the stories they tell themselves when they're aware of what they're purchasing are quite different. So it's, a, it's again, it's a kind of comfort thing, isn't it? Of, uh, and, and 
Coke really uh, plays on that with some of its marketing these days with you can't beat the real thing. Yes, exactly. And I am, look, I'm a, I'm a huge diet Coke enthusiast. It's hard for me to believe that people like Pepsi, but this is what the research says and I won't fall prey to confirmation bias. <laughs> and tell us about the Netflix thing then. So the whole, you have all these blockbuster films on your watch next list and you have loads of art house films. Um, and then we tend to pick the blockbuster ones. Tell us about that. Yeah. So this is, um, there's, there's a lot of psychology to this. So some of it is a, a current self versus future self. Um, so, uh, our, in a moment, right. When we're loading up our Netflix queue, we load it full of art house films and documentaries. And we think, you know what? I'm an intellectual, I'm a smart person, I'm going to love these films. But when we get to the moment, all we want to do is watch the Jim Carrey, you know, we want to watch Dumb and Dumber for the the 10th time because we're (laughs) tired. Like, you know, it was a long day at work. And this is called um, restraint bias. You know, this is something we think that we're going to have more uh, virtuosity, more restraint, more goodness in a moment than we actually do when we encounter that moment and we're tired and, you know, life has beat us down. So people, if you, if you ask people, you know, are you going to overeat at Thanksgiving? It's American Thanksgiving on Thursday. And you say, you know, are you going to overeat at Thanksgiving? Everyone goes, oh, no, 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 no. Like, I'll be fine. And then everyone will pig <laughs> out, you know, everyone will pig out on Thursday because we think we're going to do the right thing. Uh, but in a moment, uh, we lack the restraint to do what, what we think we're going to do. So it's a disconnect between this, this present self and this future self. And, and it's a misapprehension of how much restraint we have in a moment. Right. Um, I've got two more things I wanted to talk to you about. The the final one is the last of the four pillars, which is emotion. And then before we finish, I want to talk about your uh, dark but hopeful children's poetry. (laughs) Well, I'll just touch (laughs) on emotion. We'll start with emotion quickly because the poetry is much better. But, um, (laughs) you you know, emotion, I think we've touched on at various points in the show. It's just this tendency to privilege uh, the the head or excuse me, the heart over the head when, when making decisions. Uh, emotions are just far stickier, right? Emotions, we evolved again. Uh, we evolved to privilege emotion. It overpowers uh, cognition at every turn. And again, in many in many places in life, it serves us well. Like if you have a gut feeling about, you know, who someone you're dating and, you know, whether or not you should get serious with them, it's probably right. You know, uh, if you have a gut feeling to not go into a restaurant cause it looks a little dingy and crummy, like you're probably right. Mm. But emotions serves us very, very poorly in, in financial situations and in investment situations because for emotion to work, We need rapid, reliable feedback, and we need to have been in that situation before. So, you know, you eat a meal three times a day. So if a restaurant looks dicey to you, run because you have some history there, right? You've gotten, Mm. you've gotten rapid, reliable information. It's a decision you've made a lot. Same thing is true if you've, if you've had some experience, uh, dating, but most financial decisions are are in are un you know untrodden paths right these are these are paths we've not been down before we don't make financial decisions very often uh, the feedback is slow you know you could buy a stock today and it could go down for the next six months 
And yet, ultimately, it could be a very good decision if you look at it, uh, you know, on a long term basis. Yeah. And so um, finance sort of violates all the rules of, of what makes emotion a reliable um, bellwether for making decisions. There's a lovely quote in the book where you say we tend to conflate our desire for an outcome with its likelihood. And I think that's, again, one of those lessons for life as well as for investing, right? Yeah. I mean, go back to the marriage example, right? Like how, how much on your wedding day do you want that marriage to work? Like, you know, you want it with all your heart. And so you, you assume that you're wanting it so fervently will make it so. And we need to just get better about looking at probabilities and at base rates and making, uh, you know, making the appropriate precautions and taking the appropriate steps. Absolutely. Um, before we finish, tell us about your poetry. Yeah. So I wrote a, I wrote a children's book called Everyone You Love Will Die. <laughs> so I wrote, this is terrible. People are going to think I really am weird now. So I have, I have three, <laughs> I have three small children. And so I like to write poetry for them. And so I wrote a, a poem when we lost someone we loved. And I, I wrote this poem that was sort of irreverent, but ultimately sweet uh, saying basically, you know, everyone you love will die, but you're here today. And so am I just effectively saying, make the most of a moment, um, take the time to, to spend with the people you love and cherish and take every opportunity to tell them that you feel that way about them. The title is, of course, uh, deliberately provocative, but the book is actually quite sweet. And so we put that I, I put this poem on Facebook. A friend of mine uh, who's an illustrator said, I loved your poem. I took the liberty of mocking up some some drawings. And so um, she she does these beautiful drawings that look very sort of Shel Silverstein esque for the book. We put it on Kickstarter. It was funded. Kickstarter made it their pick of the day. It was funded within like 12 hours. <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> and so we, we raised enough funds to basically just print copies for a couple hundred friends and family and, you know, people who, who sort of pre-ordered the book that way. And so now I'm looking for a publisher to take it and run with it the rest of the way, like give it a proper publication. So uh, as you as you might assume, sending notes uh, about publishing a children's book called Everyone You Love Will Die gets you more than a few rejection letters, but we're still working <laughs> on it. <laughs> but I think you need to uh, hold true to your belief in being weird. And uh, I'm, I'm sure it will, will come to pass at some point. Trust me, I know no other way. I think I think the right publisher will stumble upon it eventually. Absolutely. Um, Daniel, it's been such a pleasure chatting. Um, the book is The Behavioral Investment. We'll put a link into the show notes for that. And um, I, I loved it. And uh, I think whether you're someone who's investing or not, I think there's so much just really rich uh, data and stories and analysis in there, which is just fantastic. So just want to say thank you for being on Beyond Busy. And um, hopefully I'll see you at the London Series Baseball next year. That's right. Go Cardinals. And thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks again to Daniel for being on the show. Thanks also to Mark Stedman, my producer on the show and his platform, Podient. Uh, in particular, shout out to Mark because I sent uh, this, like the outro, and um, the previous one that I'd sent had a glitch in it for some reason. So I'm recording this one really at the last minute and uh, Mark has swooped into the rescue to make sure we get the episode out on time. So uh, thanks again to Mark and to Podient and all you do. 
Um, thanks also to our sponsors for the show, Think Productive. So if you work in uh, an office environment, in a corporate environment, and you want to get your team or yourself to be more productive, then we can help. Um, we can help you get your inboxes to zero, help you fix your meetings, help you become a productivity ninja, and lots, lots more offices all around the world. So just go to thinkproductive.com and we'll tell you more about that. Um, finally, I just want to say, well, a couple of things. One is I'm so looking forward to the weather getting better. Um, so I, I went out today with my son and in the local park, there's like a couple of trees that have got blossom on them. And it's like, yes, uh, the daffodils are coming through and it's like, yeah, come on. So I'm really starting to feel good that uh, the the sort of longest nights of winter are over and uh, we're starting to get into the time of year that I really like. So looking forward to that and also really looking forward to uh, this weekend. I'm going to Budapest this weekend, which I'm really excited about. Um, so this is a surprise present for my girlfriend. So I'm going to go around to her house and uh, give her a, a you know, by the time this goes out, this will have happened. So it's fine. I can tell you. But yeah, I'm going to give her a, a guidebook for Budapest and she's going to unwrap it. And I'm just going to say, get your coat. And we're going to literally going to just leave and get the train and go and get on the plane. So yeah, really excited about that. I've never been to Budapest before. So I'm going to spend the weekend in those um, those funky uh, like spa pool things they've got and in the, the ruin bars and all that. So it's going to be, it's going to be a good weekend. Really looking forward to that. And, um, it's shaping up to a really interesting year, actually. I'm really, um, grateful and excited for this year now. Um, some really interesting, uh, opportunities landing and, and things happening, which I'm, I'm really excited about. So I hope it's, uh, shaping up to be a good 2020 for you as well. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to, Hear your thoughts on um, what's next for this podcast. So if you want to uh, drop me a line, graham at thinkproductive.co.uk. I'd love to hear your thoughts on future guests. I had a couple of those recently, which have been really good, like really good recommendations. So um, following up with those and I'd love to hear more. So let me know. And also, if you want to find out more, go to getbeyondbusy.com, getbeyondbusy.com. Show notes there, links to everything we've talked about, uh, link to the tickets to my masterclass, Lots, lots more, getbeyondbusy.com. I'll be back in two weeks' time. So until then, all that's left to say is take care and bye for now. Bye.